Live from the JLE in London, join us for 20 minutes weekly with Rabbi Dr. Akiva Tetz, hosted by myself, Mena Reisner, as we delve into the hottest topics of the 21st century. From the origins of the universe, vaccine conspiracies, genetics and Jewish law, relationships and everything in between, you are listening to Conversations with Rabbi Tatz. And welcome back, Rabbi Tatz. Thank you. Thank you very much for joining us again. Sure, my pleasure. You had to come in for this one because you left us with a very troubling thought last time that there's two non-negotiables in marriage and we didn't hear what they were. So we're looking forward to hear that. This is episode two in our marriage series. Rabbi Tatz, what are the two non-negotiables in marriage? Right. As usual, we are about to sort out our lives in 20 minutes. (laughs) So let's try to do that. Yes, indeed. We said that when searching for a marriage partner, and last time we met, we spoke about general principles and the commandment of marriage. Now let's turn our attention to the practical work of selecting a partner. And yes, I said that there were some absolute requirements. We discussed them last time. And then I said that there are two, I would say, non-negotiables. And the map I have in my mind is I draw a red line. Above the red line, I put two non-negotiable criteria that the person must have. And below that, a lot of very important negotiable criteria. Of the two non-negotiables, I would say the first is natural attraction. Chemistry, chemistry, physical attraction, chain, charm, a certain connecting, a certain feeling of being able to spend time with a person without speaking and feeling comfortable. Now, the reason I put this first is because, not because it's the more important of the two, but it's easier to assess. You know, you spend a little time with a person in a meeting, two, three, four, maybe five meetings, you don't feel a natural attraction and a chemistry between you, that's disturbing. That's disturbing. Now, marriage can be difficult at the best of times, and we need everything we can get. And so, particularly in our generation, it is important to have a natural feeling and a chemistry. Another reason I put it first is it's not logical. It's a question of taste. You like pink, I like blue. It's cultural. It comes from our families and our cultures and our ethnic backgrounds, you know. And therefore, I think it is a more natural thing to put first, and I think it's something can be more easily assessed than the other criteria. If someone were to come to you and say that there's a fantastic chemistry between us, we get on, I love a sense of humor, there's just no physical attraction, would you tell them to wait, maybe you'll come, or would would that be a red flag for you? Yes, well, let's talk a bit about that. When I talk about chemistry as a first criteria, I'm talking about physical attraction as well, and that's very important, very important. Now, if you mature enough, mature enough, That's irrelevant, but you have to be very mature. And people in our generation generally find it very hard to rise to the the occasion. You know how many young men have said to me, Rabbi, you know, she's wonderful and even beautiful, but there's one feature about her body or, you know, her looks that disturbs me. The answer to that is that's immature, but it's real. And if that's going to be a barrier between you and prevent you giving love, that is a problem. Now, it isn't only our modern generation that's weak. This is a theoretical problem and a practical problem as well. The Talmud itself says that a man should not marry a woman without seeing her first. Now notice that it's a man's issue more than a woman's, and we'll talk about that. The Talmud says if you marry a woman without seeing her, and then when you see her and you're close with her and physically affectionate and close, and something distresses you physically, you'll have trouble loving her as yourself, which is a commandment for the wife no less than anyone else love your neighbor or your compatriot, someone else as yourself. And therefore... That is a universal issue. Now, why does the Talmud put it more in the man's court than the woman's? Generally speaking, men tend to put more emphasis on this, and women generally tend to have, as we said in our previous talk, a more mature picture 
or concept of the value of a relationship. A woman, let's put it this way, will put up with less or put up with more, I don't know which is the correct expression, and she will value the meaning of the relationship more deeply and more naturally, more intrinsically, very often than a man. Now, this may be generalization, and there may be exceptions in our generation, but that's generally true. However, it's important on the part of both. Let me tell you a story about this. When I say it's important on the part of both, both need to be attracted to the other physically as well and in terms of general chemistry. Here's a story to bring this out. Late one Saturday night, I had a knock at my door. Young lady standing there, and she's very tense and anxious. She has to speak to me. Comes into my house, sits down, and tells me, I'm getting married in eight days' time. Tomorrow a week, Sunday a week, I'm getting married. And the young man I'm getting married to is absolutely wonderful. I'm a great admirer of his. But now that marriage is approaching, I have to admit, just not physically attracted to him at all. In fact, I find him a little offensive. Why did I get engaged to him? Because I admire him greatly. But now thinking of having to be with him, you know, intimately is distressing. I said to her, listen, you sit here and you think about it and you make a decision now. You either decide right now that you're calling it off with all the pain and trauma that that will cause or you're going through it and you will never look back and be able to give yourself fully to this young man. She sat there thinking about it, agonizing over the question and finally decided to go ahead. They got married. They got divorced on their wedding night. She found herself unable to go home with him, and that's where it ended. So that is a very distressing story, wow. but it goes to show only that there needs to be mutual attraction. Now, the standards may be different in terms of how strongly attracted one needs to be a part of the man and the woman, but it's very important. Let me hasten to add, you know, you asked me some questions about marriage in general. Let me hasten to add that this area needs to be maintained even after marriage too. The typical young man, you know, is looking wonderful when he's dating. You know, he's wearing a clean shirt for the first time in 18 years. <laughs> and spelling like a flower. And then after marriage, he starts to gradually change shape, you know, and uh, goes to seed a bit. You know, that's disrespectful. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Or a woman, you know, she looked wonderful when she's dating, and then after she gets married, you know, she tends to walk around the house looking like something someone forgot to put in the fridge for two weeks. <laughs> that is not acceptable, not respectful. If you keep yourself fit and trim and looking good, you need to do that after marriage as well. Shlomo Zalman Albach, one of the great rabbis of the previous generation, over 80 years old, walking up the steps to his home with one of his students, starts to fix his jacket and make himself look neat. And the student says, Rabbi, do you have guests at home? He said, no, my wife's home. In his 80s, making himself look spruce and neat for his wife. Absolutely, that's respectful and one needs to do that. So let's sum this up. We say there needs to be a chemistry, a natural attraction. It needs to be maintained after marriage. And I put it first because usually it can be assessed more easily. Now, you asked me this question. What if it's not there initially? Compatibility and the great admirers of each other, but there's just no physical chemistry at all. I would indeed say meet more than once if the person is really admirable and ideal in many other ways, because sometimes a person grows on you. This isn't your preconceived picture of what the person would look like, but you get to see the beauty after you get to know them. However, if you've met two times, or three, or four, or five, and still there's no attraction at all, you know, just no ability to picture yourself bonding with this person in every way, that I think is distressing. Now, as I said, if you mature enough, you could marry anyone. You know of Yosef Chaim Zonenfeld, the great rabbi of Jerusalem at the turn of the last century. You know, he agreed to marry a young lady that they told him about, and she seemed fine, and he agreed to marry her. And when the marriage actually was about to, to happen, it turned out she was 10 years older than they'd told him and probably could not have children. But he married her because he wouldn't hurt her feelings. You know, he'd given his word and he couldn't bear to think of the pain she'd go through if it turned her down. 
And in fact, they were married for many years without children. And as it happened, she then died and he married someone else and he had children. Now, if you're mature enough, you could marry even someone who in one sense had even betrayed you in that way. But you need to be a race of Chaim Zonnefeld to do that and not recommended in our generation. So I would say in summary, yes, if a time has gone by and there's just no chemistry at all, for most people that is distressing enough. Now, as I said, it can be very immature. I had one young man. He married a young lady who was very wonderful and very beautiful. As it happens, my wife and I knew her very well, very attractive, extremely presentable and absolutely wonderful. A week or two after the marriage, she came into my office and he said to me, Rabbi, I can't live with this girl. I said, why not? She doesn't look like my mother. I said, what? He said, I always wanted to marry a girl who would look like my mother. I said, why did you marry her? He said, my rabbi said it would be okay. Put his head down and cried, and six months later they were divorced. Very immature, very problematic, but for him, it was real. By the way, this leads us to another question, and that is, no external party should ever pressure people into getting married, because they need to take the responsibility. And therefore, if you're a rabbi, a rabbitson, a shatchan, somebody working with people getting married, your job is to help the process, oil the wheels of the relationship. Or even a parent. Indeed, yes, indeed. To press someone, and this business of getting married within a week or two, you know, meeting three or four times and then being pressurized into making a decision, very unhealthy. And what usually happens then is if there are doubts, after the engagement and things are being planned and money's being spent, the pressure mounts, and then there are meltdowns, meltdowns. And therefore, one should not pressurize. Your job as a helper is to help and to help them see clarity, but they need to take the responsibility. At three o'clock in the morning when money's tight and they're in pain and things aren't going well, you know, and you told them to get married. Now, of course, there are exceptions. I remember one young man we had here who was afraid of marriage, but clearly head over heels in love with a young lady, and she was totally suitable. There was no question about it. None of us had any doubts about that, but he was terrified. He was terrified. He was an only child, very close to his mum. And for the three or four weeks before marriage, he was lying in bed in the fetal position crying. You know, he was just terrified. Well, we, Rabbi Kirsch and myself, carried him to the chuppah in the fetal position crying. You know, and he stopped crying long enough to give her the ring. And, you know, he's very happily married today. I need to see the wedding photos. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, the, yes, well, no, well, they judiciously chose the right pictures. <laughs> but be that as it may, as a general rule, people need to take responsibility and natural attraction is important. Can you talk quickly about the dating? Because among orthodox circles, at least, we date three to four times within one week from never having heard of her. You're engaged to be married. And that always seems spectacularly weird to especially less more secular people. How's that possible? You need to get to know someone properly at least two, three years before. Can you speak a bit about that? Yes, indeed. First of all, let me say this. How strongly attracted do you need to be Let's say they've met the two or three times that you mentioned, or even four or five times, and the person is clearly attractive. How attractive do we mean? And I would say you need a red line here as well. The red line is the line of neutrality. The person, you know, doesn't appeal to particularly, but you don't find them offensive. Above that, they're attractive. Below that, you wouldn't want to be close to them at all. My rule is it needs to be above the red line. How attractive do they have to be? Do you have to look at them and get life-threatening asthma? You know? <laughs> I would say a mild breathlessness at least, you know, a little <laughs> excitement, you know, it's got to be positive. Now marriage changes you, time changes you, pregnancy changes you, but you need to start with a positive attraction. Looking for the most attractive person in the world is probably not wise. After all, this young fellow himself is probably not the greatest, you know, it may not be the Mr. Perfect. And, and, and it can change. Indeed, indeed. So I think there'll always be somebody more attractive 
So that's not the standard. The standard is has to be positive, and the test is can I give myself to this person on all levels without reserve? Okay, there's natural nerves in the beginning and so forth, but that needs to be there. And you always have my gnuffen. That's something else that's always more attractive that's than a, what you have. A, that's a deep comment as well. Now you asked about arranged marriages. So here's the rule. In the modern world, we need enough time to feel that the person is really compatible with us. And I would say there's a range here. The person from a secular background, what we call the Balchuva, somebody moving into marriage who doesn't have a Jewish background, who may have many intimate relationships in the past, needs more time. Needs more time to really feel that the person is really compatible, to relax, see them in various circumstances, under various conditions. You really need to feel that you've gotten to know them. And I will talk about how long that needs to be. In the more formalized religious world where there are few comparisons, no previous relationships, it could be shorter. But in the modern world, it tends to take quite some time as well. Now, there are some corners of the Jewish world, let's call them, for want of a better term, the ultra-Orthodox world, in which there's been no familiarity with the opposite sex at all. You come from the same corner of Meir Shorim or Yunagula. The young man is pretty sure she'll be much like his mother. She can be pretty sure he'll be a lot like her father. They've been davening in the same shul for the last 350 years. They've got common goals. Like, what's the problem, right? That could be a much shorter period of time. But it's not for the majority of our podcast listeners. Here's a story. I know a rabbi who was raised in Meishorim, you know, the ultra-Orthodox yeah. Yiddish-speaking corner of Jerusalem, uh, many, many years ago, and he told us how he got married. He said one fine day, his father walked in, in Yiddish, said to him, Rav Nochem, put on your Shabbos clothes. Put on your Shabbat outfit. He said to his father, why? But he said, no, never mind. Put, put on his Shabbat clothes. His father marched him across from Meishorim into a house in Gula, and said to him, say hello to your color, you know, greet your bride. <laughs> so he said hello, and everybody said, Mazel Tov. The men had a party in the one room, the women had a party in another room. On the way out, his father said, say goodbye to your color. He said goodbye to his said, not her, her. Oh, he said, uh, you know, he identified the right girl. Now that's your mother-in-law. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And so that was the only time they saw each other before the chuppah. Wow. After all, they met, they approved of each other. They, you know, there was nothing wrong, and they, they agreed. The story has an interesting ending. They were married for a few years without having any children, and they went to see the Chazunish, the great rabbi in Bnei Brak, for a blessing. And he gave them a bracha for Chaib Bonim Chaib, a blessing that they should have 18 living children, and they ended up with 19. Now, I'm not sure how many, whether 19 children would be suitable for our listeners. I give them all a blessing that they should have 19 living and healthy children. Uh, very, very meritorious. But be that as it may, that is acceptable in that world where there's such a cultural I would say, cohesiveness and standards that are so agreed and no familiarity with the opposite sex at all that that could work very well. I may add, as a doctor, speaking as a doctor, and I've worked in that community, the problems are rising. The problems are on the increase. There are divorces now, and we see divorces for many reasons and across all levels. But let it be very clear that the divorce rate in the ultra-Orthodox world is tiny compared to the broader world and even the broader Jewish world. Many people say to me, how does that work? No familiarity? How do you know it will work? How do you know an intimate relationship will work? Well, that's quite easy to answer. And the answer is, in the secular world, where people lived together before marriage for years, and the divorces are happening within months of marriage, what happened to compatibility? And speaking, as again, as a doctor, those in the ultra-Orthodox world to marry, the problems are very much less than in the... We always have problems. They're organic and physical problems, indeed, and of late, more and more psychological problems. That's true. But it works surprisingly well when it's set up in that fashion. So that's my answer to you about a so-called arranged marriages. But let, let me finish by saying again that if you have a secular background, one young man said to me, Rabbi, I'm very concerned 
getting married in a few months' time, and I'm worried that my wife will not live up to the best of all the intimate relationships I've had before, 63 of them, and he's been counting. <laughs> right. Well, you know, yeah, that's an issue. So, of course, that's a whole different kettle of fish. And the approach to the, let's call it the Balchuva relationship and marriage, needs a separate discussion because it has unique elements. But these are some of the general issues, I think, when it comes to choosing a partner. And let's not end on another cliffhanger. So I'll mention without any detail the second characteristic. We said the first non-negotiable. We talked again about absolutes. It's opposite sex and both partners are Jewish and so on. Then we said that there's suitable attraction and there's a chemistry on a physical and an emotional level. I would say the most important of all is the second non-negotiable criterion, and that is character. Who's the person? Who's the actual raw material? We're not talking about physicality. We're not talking about money. We're not talking about even details like sense of humor, taste in food. We're talking about the raw character of the individual. I think we should leave it here for this podcast. And if you're kind enough to invite me again, I'm very happy to talk about that. Yep, I would definitely love to hear more about character. Thank you very much, Robert Hats, again. This was episode two in marriage, more specifically this time, finding a marriage partner. But I'm sure there's a lot of questions that are going to come in from that and we'd definitely like to hear more about how we left off so thank you and we'll see you again next week looking forward